Welcome to Walking in Faith with Pastor Rob Currington. This podcast is dedicated to helping develop lifelong seekers of the Kingdom of God. Each week, Pastor Rob helps bring God's message for living to those seeking a richer and more Christ-filled life. Now let's join Pastor Rob as he shares this week's message. Oh God, Father in heaven, we bless thee, our creator, preserver, our benefactor, our teacher, for opening to us the volume of nature, where we may read and consider your works. This day you have spread before us the fuller pages of Revelation, and in them we see what you would have us do, what you require of us, what you have done for us, what you have promised to us and what you have given to us in Christ. We pray for a conscious experience of his salvation this morning in our deliverance from sin, in our bearing his image, in enjoying his presence, and in being upheld by his free spirit. Let us not live uncertain of what we are or where we are going. Bear witness with our spirit that we are your children And enable each one this morning to say, I know my Redeemer. Bless us with a growing sense of this salvation. If we're already enlightened in Christ, may we see greater things. If quickened, may we have more abundant life. If renewed, let us go from strength to strength. Give us a closer abiding in Jesus. That we may bring forth more fruits. That we may have a deeper sense of our obligation to him. And that we may surrender all, having a fuller joy. And that we may serve him more completely. May our faith work by love towards him who died, towards our fellow believers, and towards our fellow man. Father, we come before you this morning. Thank you for all your goodness and all your greatness. Lord, both to small and to great. For Father, we see you in all things and that you may be glorified. We pray this in the name of Christ. And God's people said, Amen. Amen. The unveiling continues in our passage this morning as Jesus reveals that a suffering Messiah leads to disciples who also must suffer as well. When confronted with the concept that the Messiah must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and then be killed, And after three days rise again, Peter rebuked Jesus. Yet Jesus corrected him with the words, You are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. With that statement, Jesus reveals not only their hearts, but our hearts as well today. For you and I are like the disciples. We are guilty of self-centeredness and worldly thinking. Like the disciples who hopes were based on a Messiah that would be a national, political, and military leader that would defeat all their enemies, restore their land and government to the Jews, and then restore their fortunes as God-chosen people, we too yearn for personal fortune and well-being and our own happiness. We see that very clearly, not only here in the Western world, in the United States, but surely here in Orange County as well. To remind you, the second paragraph of the Declaration of Independence reads, We hold these truths to be self-evident. 
that all men are created equal, that they are endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights, that among these are life, liberty, and the what? Pursuit of happiness. We know that, do we not? Those words have been the rallying cry of thousands, if not tens of hundreds of thousands, millions of people who have left all that they have to come to America. According to Wikipedia, the American dream is a national ethos of the United States. It's a set of ideals in which freedom includes the opportunity for prosperity and success and upward social mobility achieved through hard work. In the definition of the American dream by James Truslow Adams in 1931, he writes, Life should be better and richer and fuller for everyone with opportunity for each according to his ability or achievement, regardless of social class or circumstance of birth. And we desire for that. Ted Ownby identifies four American dreams that we as a consumer culture address. That's the dream of abundance. We want to have as much as we can. There's a dream of a democracy of a good in which everyone has access to the same things. A dream of the freedom of choice in which we can choose in which way we want to go and how we want to live. And the dream of novelty in which we want to create and invent. And America is just one of those countries that finds new ways of doing things. The American dream has often been described as one having home ownership and freedom and rights of men and women of having a successful life, a successful marriage, and most of the time, children. The all-American dream also entails the idea held by many in the U.S. that through hard work and courage or determination, anyone can achieve prosperity. However, what we're here to share with you this morning is that the American dream clashes with God's teaching, with the teachings of Scripture. Pastor David Platt in his book Radical writes, I believe that the gospel and the American dream have fundamentally different starting points. The American dream begins with self. It exalts self. It says that you are inherently good. You have in you what it takes to be successful, to do all that you can. Work with everything you have to make much of yourself. That's the American dream. But the gospel starting point is completely different. You see, the gospel begins with God. The reality that we were created to exalt His name, not our own, to the ends of the earth. You and I are not inherently good, but we are born and conceived in evil. The gospel tells me that I am inherently evil and I need someone to save me. I cannot pull myself up by my bootstraps. In the gospel, the self is crucified from the start. So that from the starting point, everything changes. Now it's not that I have in me, but it's about what God provides in me. It's not about my life, but the life of Christ. It's not about me making much of myself. It's about me making much of God. That's the gospel. He goes on to write, and from those starting points flow two different trajectories for how life looks and how success looks like, what satisfaction in life looks like. And if you and I miss the starting point, he goes on, either self in the American dream or God in the gospel, then that changes everything from then out. The mantra of the American dream is to advance yourself with hard work, ingenuity, innovation. You can have it all is the selling point. 
However, again, as we say, God commands us to give up everything. In our passage today, the main theme for those of you who like to take notes is that true followers of Jesus must abandon all claims on their lives. True followers of Jesus must abandon all claims on their life. In Mark chapter 8, look at verse 34 through 37. And Jesus calling the crowd to him with his disciples said to them, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospel's will what? Save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? For what can a man give in return for his soul? For whoever is ashamed of me and of my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with his holy angels. Let's pray. Father, I just pray that you would just join with us this morning as we now just take your word and learn from it. Thank you for these words. I thank you for these words that give life. And I pray that you would help delineate in my preaching here your words from mine. Mine are my opinions and my interpretation. Let us understand what your Holy Spirit has for us this morning. And I pray that our hearts have done the work of preparing. Lord, I pray that the Holy Spirit would have free reign. And may we respond to your call this morning. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. What did Jesus mean when he said, come? follow me. For many people, that means many different things. And I'm here to share with you, I think many times the American dream and the Christian dream or the gospel have had an almost, I'm going to say, an unholy union in which we've created some type of hybrid that's an American Christianism that is actually anti-gospel. Now, before you say that there's not, I'm not downing the American dream, there's nothing wrong with God blessing you in your life. But I have to share, there's one dream in which we take from God, and there's another one in which God gives us. My unofficial title of this message is How the Words of Jesus Ruined My Life. And you'll see here that Jesus is intending to ruin your whole life. He's going to upend it. He's going to turn it upside down. He's going to take your dreams and all the things that you desire, and He's going to say, die to it. The first thing we need to see as we go through here is I want to give five observations. The first one is actually from two weeks ago in verse 29, where Jesus requires a personal response. Talking to his disciples, he said, who do the crowds, who do the people say that I am? And remember, we went through that list. And then Jesus went to his disciples and said, but who do you say that I am? Peter answered him, you are the Christ. So to set this up, we need to recognize that Jesus requires from you and I a personal response on his identity of who he is. Who do you say Jesus is this morning? Two weeks ago, we came to understand that our answer to that question has its significance and consequences. However, it's not enough for you and I just to say, I believe in Jesus or I love Jesus. Many are going to make that pronouncement. There are going to be many who profess Jesus. There are going to be many who have actually cast out demons and healed and done wonderful works for Jesus, but yet Jesus will say at that judgment day, what? Depart from me. I never knew you. And they're saying, but Lord, Lord. Jesus, again, I've said this before. He doesn't say, no, you didn't do anything. 
He didn't say you didn't cast out demons. He didn't say you didn't do good works. He says, I never knew you. And so what we see is that there are many who make this pronouncement. So you and I, the question is, well, wait a second. Well, if I want to follow Jesus, if I believe Jesus is the Christ, then how do I know that I can be accepted at that end date? Well, here's, the, here's how he answers this. Because not only does Jesus require our personal response, but number two, the second observation, is that Jesus demands a complete devotion. Look at verse 34, where he says, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. Jesus brings the crowds and the disciples together, and he gives them two requirements to be his disciples. The first one is a self-renouncement of our claim to the throne of God and a denial of ourselves as the object of admiration. Our first parents, Adam and Eve, they failed this test. They put themselves on that throne. They themselves became the object of admiration in their own eyes, and that has followed you and I down through our lineage. Each and every one of us have this evil in our lives. According to the ESV, it says, self-denial means letting go of self-determination and replacing it with obedience to and dependence on the Messiah. It involves giving up a self-centered life for a life of self-sacrifice. So do you want to follow Jesus? Do you want to become one as his disciples? Then it's going to require a self-renouncement of our claim to the throne and a denial of ourselves as objects of our admiration. In other words, we are not the apple of our eye. And you may say, well, I'm that way now, but I would want to challenge you. If you want to know truly who your God is, if you truly want to know who you worship, check your daytimer. Check your checkbook. Check the way you do your entertainment. In what ways does God become prominent and preeminent in all those areas of your life? And I think if we, like David, say, search me, O God, and see if there's any wicked way, that God, would, like a mirror, would show us those ways through scriptures in which you and I continually put ourselves on the throne of God, in which you and ourselves are always propping ourselves as the object of our admiration. So not only is a self-renouncement, but to follow Christ also means taking up our cross and following Jesus. Now, taking up the cross and following Jesus is a phrase that many times we just throw out there, but we need to understand what that phrase means. For taking up the cross and follow Jesus is painting a word picture of a man that's condemned and forced to carry his own cross to his execution. That's how it was done there. That's what he's speaking about. In essence, Jesus is telling him, pick up an instrument of torture and carry it willingly on your back. That's what Jesus did. The cross evokes a vivid and horrifying image of the death march with all of its shameful publicity. And you can recall from that time when Jesus walked through the streets, broken, beaten, naked, carrying his cross. It was not just the cross that was awful, but it was the shame. It was reserved for those that were of the worst criminals, those that were the worst uh, in rebellion and guilty of treason. It wasn't just a regular form of punishment, but included the parading down where everyone would walk and spit and yell. What Jesus is saying is you need to take a walk of shame, 
recognizing and identifying yourself with those that are the worst of society. Picking up that cross. And all this shameful publicity. You see, suffering and death awaits all who will follow Jesus. Not just for the twelve, not just for the disciples, but in bringing all of his disciples together, it shows us that anyone who wishes to join Christ Jesus is speaking about the loss of life here. Let's not minimize this. Jesus is not talking about just enduring hardship and experiencing discomfort, which is really for us in the America, that's what we do. You and I, we endure some hardships or experience some discomfort. But really, Jesus is saying it's a loss of life. He says, anyone who must follow me will die. Theologian R.T. France notes that Jesus calls for a radical abandonment of one's own identity and self-determination. It's a call to join the march to the place of execution. So when we talk about the things of this world, having our minds, he's saying, what is your dreams? What is your aspirations? What are those things that you hope for? What are those things that you desire for yourself? And not only for yourself, but for your family. Are you ready to allow that to be crucified? Are you ready to give all of that up? And I have to tell you, that is a very difficult, difficult thing to think of. For not myself but also for my children. This is where it comes to rest for me many times. Yeah, it was easy for me when we moved out here to California, leaving all family, because it was my choice. But I'll tell you that I pray today that God never does that to my family, that He never takes my children and little Landon away. But you know, that's the reality of life. But you know what? If He does, I pray that it's not just for some job where they can make more money. It's not just so they can go out to Riverside or somewhere else so they can afford a home. I pray now that God would prepare me that it's for the place of suffering for the cause of Christ. And for many of us, that's where we need to be. Many times we give all for our children, but yet all that we give our children really is the American dream. You can have it all. You can play every sport. You can play all of your instrument. You can do this. And we live our lives for our children, but yet we're never preparing our children to die. And just as a side editorial note, this is my speaking, not the Holy Spirit or the Scripture, but is that not what we have now when you have college kids in Missouri and elsewhere who show themselves not willing to die where all they're talking about is, I need a safe place. I need a healing place. I need a place where everyone agrees with me. We need to be a society. We need to be a people that are ready to die. I had to ask myself a question. Why do so many profession Christians burn so brightly only to crash and burn over time? You know, and I remember this. And many of you who have grown up in any church for a length of time, you will know people who get saved. And boy, it just seems like they're just flaming. We even have a term. They're on fire for Christ. But eventually wind up falling away. I remember one man, it was when I was young, he's a friend of the pastors and he got saved. And he was up front every Wednesday, every Sunday, both services, always praising God, giving God the glory for something. And he was one of those ones that we would say, he was on fire. He was a flame. He was there for everything. But then one day he wasn't there. Then he wasn't there. Then another Sunday. Before you know, never heard from him again. And last I heard, he was just away. From the church. Why does that happen? 
You probably know people like that. Maybe you've been like that yourself. You burn bright for Christ, but then you find yourself falling back after time. And I think, why is it that he's come so easily to sin? Why is it that they forsake the faith? Why do they not overcome and persevere? Or how, you may ask, is it's that some people do? For just as though we know people that have burned brightly and then flamed away, you and I know people who have just been faithful followers of Christ for ages. Do you know people like that? Maybe they're coming to mind. People who have been prayer warriors. People who you always know that they're praying and they're in the Scripture and they've just been faithful. What's the difference? It's because they did not count the cost. You see, the cost of discipleship is very high. As Landon read, he says, who's going to go to war unless he sees if he has enough people? Who's going to build a house unless he sees how much money he has so that he can finish? I think there are many people, and it's many times, it's the way that you and I have presented Christ. It's how we presented the gospel has led many to jump off and say, I'll follow Christ, but yet they truly haven't counted the cost. The Bible tells us that you and I might count the cost. It says, therefore, if any one of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. Why is it that some people flame brightly and then burn out? It's because they never counted the cost. And like the parable of the soil, when the, when the sun comes and when the tribulation comes and when the difficulties come, they have no root in themselves and they burn up. And for those who are still growing strong, and even though they may be bent, they're carrying their cross, they're being faithful. Why is it? Because they have counted the cost. Again, I've shared this with many of you. If you had young children, or even if you have adult children, or even yourself, they're going to become people in your life in which they once made a profession of Christ, and then they may come and they have those seasons of doubt. Have you ever had seasons of doubt in your life? Where you doubted you're a Christian? Anyone here? I have. There's many of us suffer through those things. The last thing you want to do is you don't want to take them to your Bible and say, look it, you got saved on September 10th, 1971. Or you got saved on October 14th, 2001. You don't want to give them those types of things. What's written in the front of your Bible is not proof of salvation. You don't show them their baptism certificate. You don't give them their perfect attendance in Awana or VBS. Many times what's happening is you and I are giving false assurances a profession that they were surely not made of. If you truly want to help someone know whether or not that they're a disciple of Christ, point them to the cross. For truly the proof of their salvation is found if they're willing to suffer Christ. Are they ready to renounce all that they have? That's the proof that you and I have. Look at the hard words of Jesus in John chapter 6. Jesus says when he has many disciples, many, many people are following him. He says, whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life. And after this, it says, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. He lost, he lost probably more than half of the disciples, the crowds that followed him. But then he turns to Peter and says to the twelve, to the disciples, do you want to go away as well? And Simon Peter answered and said, Lord, to whom shall we go? 
You have the words of eternal life. And we have believed and come to know that you are the Holy One of God. They counted the cost. Yes, and we know Peter, he will fail, will he not? He still is yet to deny Christ three times. He is yet to fail in eating with the Jews and not putting himself away from the Gentiles. That still awaits in his future, but yet we know in his boldness that he counted the cost. It doesn't mean that one never fails, but it means that one has counted the cost. Or the sad story of the rich young man and his response. How do I inherit eternal life? And Jesus says, gives them the Ten Commandments, obey your mother and father. Don't do this, don't do that, do this. And he says, all of these I've done uh, since I was young. And Jesus said, you lack one thing, go sell all that you have and give to the poor. And you'll have treasure in heaven. Come, follow me. And you and I know one of the saddest stories in Scripture where he says, disheartened by the saying, the young man went sorrowful for he had great many possessions. He counted the cost, and he said, following Jesus is not worth it. So there will be many who look at Jesus, who may even taste and say, yes, he is good. I like what it's about. I kind of believe it, and they'll profess it. But yet when it comes down to it, they haven't counted the true cost. For Christ says, you must come and die. Third observation is Jesus rewards the devoted follower. Look at verse 35. He says, For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? For what can a man give in return for his soul? Jesus here is pointing out an investment that truly pays a dividend. It's a grand bargain. Loss in this temporal life and gain in eternity, or vice versa. Which one is better, in essence, he's saying? And obviously, a little bit of money here is much better if I have a lot more here. We did this experiment once with my kids. We had a little bit of money, and I sit down. We were at the dinner table. I said, I'll tell you what. I'll give you a dollar today, and you can have that dollar, and you can spend it any way you want it, but if you don't spend any of it, if you save it until Friday, I think this was Monday, if you, don't, if, you don't say, if you don't do anything by Friday, I'll give you five more dollars. Now, which one would you take? What's the better deal? Save and get another five or spend what you had now? Save. I'll have to tell you that I was a rich man on Friday. Why? We were trying to teach. This was a teachable moment. But how many of us are like that? Many of our financial difficulties and our problems in our life is because we want now, we want now, we want now. We want it all. We don't have an eternal way of thinking. But Jesus said, hey, wait a second, I've got an investment that pays a dividend every time. I have a great bargain. This is the Black Friday sale that you cannot miss. This is one in which, yes, you may not have much now, but in the end you'll have much more. Which do you want? But you and I are like the monkey with our hand in a jar holding on to a banana and trapped because we just won't let go of the banana. We need to renounce all. Jesus rewards though the follower. In Matthew 13, Jesus points out that investment truly pays a dividend. 
Discipleship is costly, but it is worth the price. Just as Jesus' rejection on earth will lead to vindication and glory in heaven, those that choose to follow Christ should expect the same experience. We, like Jesus, will be rejected in this world, but be accepted in the next. In Matthew 13, Jesus tells the parable of both the hidden treasure and the pearl of great price. He says the kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field, which a man found and covered it up. Then in his joy, he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. He says again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant in search of fine pearls, who on finding one pearl of great value went out and sold all that he had and bought it. You and I need to see that Jesus, the kingdom of heaven, is much greater than anything that we have here on earth. But yet we struggle seeing it and viewing life. Why? Because Peter, we have our minds set on things on man, not on things of God. Paul's response to the call of Christ in Philippians chapter 3 says, Whatever gain I had, I counted as loss. For the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as lost because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. Knowing Christ is of more value. For His sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. Have you counted the cost today? Are you ready to follow Him? Or is your profession of faith really very shallow? You're trying to add Jesus to a problem. You think that it's just another solution. He's another program. Something else that can just help you get through the day. Scripture tells us that where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. So I ask you today, where's your treasure? What captures your heart? True value, make a determination. Jesus in the kingdom of God is a treasure worth sacrificing. Jesus rewards his devoted followers. What is more worth, the temporary or the eternal? Dietrich Bonhoeffer, who lived during the time of Hitler, he was a German pastor and theologian. In his book, The Cost of Discipleship, he wrote, When Christ calls a man, he bids him come and die. He's echoing the words of the Apostle Paul who said, For to me to live is Christ and to die is gain. Have you counted the cost? Let me assure you here that picking up your cross and following Him is worth the price. It may cost you here in this life, but the rewards of heaven and eternity is of much more value. Fourthly, not only does Jesus reward the devoted follower, but fourthly, Jesus rejects those who rejects him. You and I don't like to think of a God like that. But he says it very clearly in verse 38. If you're still with me in Mark chapter 8. For he says, For whoever is ashamed of me and of my words in this adulterous, sinful generation, of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed when he comes in his glory of his Father with the holy angel. Jesus now gives them a warning, a dire warning, a warning with strict consequences. Confess Jesus or deny Jesus. Come to Him and counting the cost and ready to die or face shame and death in the world after. Full allegiance to Christ is required no matter what the cost. 
Your decision has eternal consequences. That's why Paul writes to Timothy when he says, share in the sufferings as a good soldier of Christ. He also encouraged Timothy to always be sober-minded, endure suffering, do the work of evangelists, fulfill your ministry. For he says, for I, by Paul, am being poured out as a drink offering. And the time of my departure has come. He's viewing life. He knows his end is near. He says, I fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. Henceforth, he says, there is laid up for me a crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day. Not only to me, but also to all who love his appearing. There'll be great honor. But for those who reject Christ, who may even profess Him, who may go to church, who may give to a church, who may do all the things that the Bible says to do, they may face shame. When He says, depart from me, I never knew you. For you and I, we need to answer that question today. Please do not walk out of this auditorium without truly understanding. Does honor await you in heaven or does shame? Does faithfulness and acceptance, or is it going to be rejection? The choice is yours this morning. Because Jesus rejects those who reject him. Counting the cost is worth it today. Rather to, to face shame in this world and honor in the next, than to receive the honor of men and women today and face rejection in eternity. Amen? Have you counted the cost? Then fifth and lastly, Jesus promises a preview of that wonderful day. Jesus promises a preview. In this, giving them in this in Mark, he's going to show them that counting the cost is worth it. Facing the shame is worth it. Facing the loss of life. And every disciple other than John faced a martyrdom. John, though, did not die in martyrdom, suffered through pain and torture himself. Many people have died in not only the Roman Colosseums, but even today we must understand Christians in Iraq, Christians in Syria, North Korea, China. Again, in America, we have such a different view of Christianity than those who are living these words today. If you were to be transplanted into another culture, in another world, would you still profess Christ if it cost all that you have? But he gives them a preview. Look at Martin chapter 9. We're just going to look at the first verse this week where Jesus said to them, Truly I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death till they see the kingdom of God after it's come with power. Next week, as we look at the transfiguration, they're going to see Jesus glorified, three of the disciples. See, this transfiguration anticipates and guarantees the return of Christ, the parousa. It points to the coming reality of Christ's complete victory. There is a hope for you and I. Counting the cost, there is a hope that it's worth it. That we can understand that Christ is coming. There's seven truths I want you to consider this morning. Seven truths. They're not on the screen, so just please listen attentively. You and I must consider these truths. Number one, all people have knowledge of God. That's what Scripture says. All people have knowledge of God. Number two, all people have rejected God. Number three, all people are guilty before God. Number four, all people are condemned for rejecting God. Number three, God, though, has made a way 
of salvation for the lost. Amen? It's very true. And that people cannot come to God apart from Christ. And here's where we're coming to. This is why counting the cost is so important. This is why carrying your cross and denying yourself is so important. It's because people cannot come to God apart from faith in Christ. For lastly, Christ commands the church to make the gospel known to all peoples. It's the church that has been given the mystery of the manifold grace of God, Paul tells us. It's through us that we become the fragrance of the world, the aroma of Christ. How will people know Christ? Through those that give it all. Through our death. Through our renouncement of self and taking up a cross of shame. That's how others will come to know Jesus. Our suffering points to a suffering Messiah that we saw last week. You and I as the church are plan A. There is no plan B. It's not the government. It's not corporations. It's not union. It's not, non, it's not nonprofits. It is the church is the solution to the problems of this world. And we, you and I need to risk everything, our comfort, our possessions, our safety, our security, our very lives must be given up in order to make the gospel known among the unreached peoples. The Bible says that one day every nation, every tribe, and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. And there are some people in this world who have not yet heard the gospel in their own language. God has revealed himself to them, but they can't come to him except through Christ. And so that's why it's important for you to deny to renounce all things. Many times what you and I have exported is really the American dream. We go to other countries and we try to make them American. We try to give the American ideas. And then we might give them some of the gospel. We may give them some of Jesus. The worst export gospel that's given out right now to the world is the prosperity gospel of health and wealth. America is doing more damage now through missions and preachers who are just spreading throughout South America and the rest of the world, just spreading the false gospel of prosperity. Undoing much of the work that great Americans have given for the last 200 years. The only way that changes is when people renounce all they have. Instead of exporting the false gospel, is you and I need to give them the true gospel, the real gospel. You may ask, well, why is it that Christians in America don't look like the disciples in the Bible? Why is it they don't look like self-denying, cross-carrying disciples? David Platt, I'm going to quote him, writes that there's obviously a cultural and historical disconnect between us in the 21st century and the disciples in the 1st century. As a result of that, there are a lot of things that tend to cloud our Christianity with that unknowingly. In many cases, we miss the entire point of the gospel. He writes that the way we have unprecedented material blessing, with the way that we have culture built on self and self-esteem and self-confidence, all of these things, we begin to twist the gospel into something that it is not. And we as churches and pastors and people in, who profess Christ have played a part in that in some way and in some form and fashion. 
We make it look like us and we fit it into our lifestyle instead of adjusting our lifestyle to the gospel. In this process, we make following Jesus more American than it is biblical. As a result, there seems to be a major disconnect between what it means to follow Christ in the first century and what it means to follow Christ in our definition in the 21st century. Could you imagine someone standing up today and saying, you want the gospel, you want to follow Jesus? Then die and take up your cross. Unfortunately, in many pulpits today, and this weekend, there will be many who are telling people something different, radically different. And you and I need to realize that. The message that you and I need to grab is deny and follow. The message you need to give to your family and to your children is deny and follow. The message your family, your friends, your neighbors, your co-workers need is deny and follow. Walter Wessel writes, that Mark is writing this to encourage and strengthen the Roman Christians who are facing persecution and trials. You know what? The Chinese Christians could use this. The American Christian needs this. Why? Because we need to choose today the American dream or the kingdom of God. Again, going back to Dietrich Bonhoeffer, who writes that the messengers of Jesus will be hated to the end of time. They will be blamed for all the division which rend cities and homes. We're seeing that begin today. Jesus and his disciples will be condemned on all sides for undermining, for undermining family life and for leading the nation astray. They will be called crazy fanatics and disturbers of the peace. Disciples will be sorely tempted to desert their Lord, but the end is also near and they must hold on and persevere until it comes. Only he will be blessed who remains loyal to Jesus and his word until the end. Steve Green writes a song that says, I will serve the Lord. He says, there marches through centuries the martyrs of the cross and all those who choose to follow Christ to suffer any loss. He writes, and though their journey led them through the shadow lands of death, the song of their commitment they rehearsed with every breath. They sung, I will serve the Lord. I will serve the Lord my God. And if God should choose in my life I lose, and though my foe may slay me, I will serve the Lord. How about you this morning? Would you choose to serve the Lord? Would you come and would you die? The words of Jesus will ruin your life. It's not about your best life today. It's not attaining the American dream. It's about giving it all up. So if you want that safe life, if you want all that the world may have, then yes, stay away from Jesus because he does bid you to come and die. But I too, would you come and die? To come and die is the acceptance of Christ. I'd like to end with this because when I think of coming and dying, I know that I cannot do that day in and day out. That is a constant struggle for me each and every moment is to come and die. For my old dreams and aspirations and desires continually to come up, I too struggle with covetousness, wanting what other people have, wishing that God would bless, trying to treat uh, God as a great ATM, a Santa. But where I fail, and where you and I struggle, is we recognize that's where the gospel comes in. 
He enables us to come and die. For without the gospel, we are lost with just self-profession that may burn bright, but in the end, we'll be fanned out. For this is not about self-doing. It's not about self-exertion, but self-denial. It's recognizing that Christ has accomplished all that is needed for our salvation and that the Holy Spirit has planted within us a new heart with a love and a desire for God deep inside our soul and even now empowers us as we yield to His ever-present help. With every head bowed and every eye closed, would you take a moment to pause, to consider, and to pray and then to respond to the Holy Spirit's work. And would you come and die for Christ? Father, I pray that we do so this morning. If there are any here that do not know you as yet, they have not made that profession, I pray that your Spirit will do a full blitz on their hearts. Open their hearts to the reality of the seven truths that we saw, that all men are guilty of sin and will be finally put in judgment. And I pray that today they will profess you as Christ, that they would count that cost and see that it's worth it, and Lord, that they would begin now, this morning, to follow you. For those of us that have professed you with our hearts, I pray now that our minds will be set on the things of God. Help us in our ever-daily, ever-present struggle to die to self, to pick up our cross, to pick up that shame, and to embrace it as you did. Lord, make us sufficient for these things. Let us remember our brothers and sisters that are in countries, that are in nations, Lord, in which real suffering, real loss, loss of life happens. And forgive us, Father, for those times that we have bought into the American dream of desiring all things, of having all things, and judging others by that dream. Help us to let go with both hands and hold dearly to that cross that you have placed on our shoulders. Lord, that others may see it, and even in their jeering and their cheering against us, even in their chaunts against us, we may say, here's our hope that they may be drawn to follow you as well. We praise you for all that you've done. In the name of Jesus, your Son, who makes all things possible, we pray. And God's people said, Amen. We hope you have enjoyed this week's Walking in Faith podcast. We encourage you to share this podcast with others in order to help spread God's message to all those in need. If you have any questions or comments, we would love to hear from you. Email us at walkinginfaith at orangevilla.org. You can help us spread this podcast by writing a review at iTunes. And don't forget to visit us online at orangevilla.org. There you will find more information about our ministry, as well as share your thoughts, submit prayer requests, and find out how you can help others to grow in God's love. Until next week, may God bless you in everything you do.